This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. We're going to cover some additional elbow pathologies that um, were more so by request, which we're happy to do. Um, You know, the elbow current concepts is pretty dense, so hopefully this will help take some of the information out of there, put it a little bit more concise, a little bit more digestible for you. Um, So we've previously covered episodes on tendinopathies and directional instabilities. So this cover, this episode is going to cover some just miscellaneous elbow topics. Um, Our hope is that it's going to help you gain a general knowledge of some other pathologies that you may see. So the first one that we're going to talk about is osteochondritis desiccans, known as OCD. This is classified as a lateral compression injury of the articular surface of the elbow joint. OCD will most often be seen in the adolescent population, specifically um, adolescent baseball pitchers and gymnasts, because those sports most often involve excessive training at an early age. They're highly repetitive motions. And there's weight-bearing and overhead movements, which are going to increase the risk due to the minimal vascular supply at the capetulum and the immature bone structure. The mechanisms of OCD are commonly believed to be a combination of repetitive microtrauma and that vascular susceptibility. The capetulum is going to be the most commonly affected area. And essentially what happens is repetitive microtrauma caused by significant compressive forces at the radiocapetular um, joint is going to cause fatigue failure on the subchondral bone. Then the bone reabsorption is followed by separation of the fragment that becomes avascular. Um, so again, just one I'd be aware of. I think the key take home there is that you're going to see it mostly in adolescent and pediatric patients. Um, so when you're doing case study review and stuff like that, um, and they're talking about pathologies in pediatric patients, this is definitely a differential that should come into your mind. The next one we're going to talk about is Panner's disease. Um, this is also known as epicondylopapositis. It's going to occur in children ages 7 to 10. And Panner's disease begins as a degeneration or necrosis in their immature capetulum, and then the bone's going to come re- become recalcified. It's not associated with trauma, and it's considered to be self-limiting. A formal diagnosis is typically made through an MRI, and these patients are going to have a similar presentation to those with osteochondritis desiccans, including that similar dull ache of the lateral elbow. You may see swelling, and they will have a loss of elbow extension. For Panner's disease, the treatment is um, often non-operative in nature. It's going to include rest, avoiding those valgus forces, and splinting for symptom management. The unfortunate part about Panner's disease is the healing time can last for up to three years, um, but the non-operative care and approach is typically very successful. Problem is it's just self-limiting and it takes a long time. The next one we're going to cover is rheumatoid arthritis. 
think this is one we're all familiar with. We're going to talk about it a little bit specifically at the elbow here. Um, just to review, though, uh, rheumatoid arthritis is a systemic chronic condition that's characterized by episodes of acute inflammation, joint synovitis, and progressive articular cartilage and bone degeneration. Smaller joints include fingers, wrists, toes, and elbow involvement, which you'll see in about 50% of patients with RA. You're going to most commonly see this in 30 to 45-year-old females. They're most often going to report joint stiffness, pain, fatigue, and weakness. And the stiffness um, is most often going to be present in the morning, and it's going to last at least one hour. So clinically, uh, loss of elbow extension will be seen, um, probably more or less a hallmark finding. In the later stages of rheumatoid arthritis, um, you may see some instabilities there. In some cases of RA, involvement at the elbow can also include a benign cyst that occur along the olecranon uh, and the proximal ulna. These are typically only removed if they're painful or they interfere with the patient's function. Um, they may be warm and swollen in nature. That's a way to kind of differentiate whether or not that may or may not be present. So in these folks with RA that's affecting their elbow joint, treatment inclu can include non-operative and operative approaches. Non-operative treatment for elbow dysfunction um, should mimic treatment of other joints affected by RA. So those acute phases for these folks may last up to four weeks, and treatment should include local um, joint pain management using modalities, splinting, and gentle active or active assistive range of motion exercise. And you should also include patient education on joint protection strategies. And progression from this phase of treatment should also be determined based on the patient's pain level and their ability to maintain function. Later treatment intervention should include that low load strengthening, incorporating muscles beyond the local elbow. So especially proximally, work their shoulder, um, you know, work their scapular muscles, get them some more proximal support and stability. Gentle stretching and specifically restricted motions is okay. Um, avoid overstretching though so you don't um, irritate their symptoms. You may need to go over with them their ergonomic setup and just making sure that folks with RA, because it involves systemic um, processes, that they're maintaining their aerobic fitness and overall health. Operative management for these folks is usually indicated if the disease progression is too significant for conservative measures to be helpful. Um, generally, I think that's mostly pain or a significant loss of motion. So a synovectomy is one option. Um, it's usually attempted in earlier stages where the goal is to improve um, additional joint destruction and joint dysfunction. So essentially what they do is they remove the inflamed tissue. In more advanced stages, though, they may need to do surgical techniques, including radial head excisions or replacements, resurfacing, or total elbow arthroplasty, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The next one we're going to talk about is osteoarthritis, um, so different than rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's going to be characterized by either primary degenerative arthritis or secondary arthritis due to a previous trauma. Elbow OA is going to vary because patients do not experience a loss of joint space like we typically see in other joints, but rather they're going to, you're going to see osteophyte formation or a joint capsule contracture where loose bodies may or may not be present within the joint. Um, more detail of primary versus secondary OA is outlined in the current concepts monograph um, in Table 19. So if that's something you're not familiar with, I would direct you there. But it's pretty much like we see in other joints in the body. You have the degenerative process versus the post-traumatic. 
Pain is usually the primary limiting factor in patients with elbow OA. Forearm rotation range of motion is usually not limited for these folks. So that's another important thing to note. Um, you should see fairly normal range there. Most of the time you're going to see an extension loss at the elbow. For non-operative management, this really needs to include act, um, education on activity modification. And pain management to maintain their range of motion may be assisted by oral medication and injections. So obviously that's not our field, but if they're having an issue with pain control and they're not able to tolerate range of motion, gaining exercises, they may need some um, pharmacology or medical intervention there to help with that. Your PT interventions for these folks should focus on maximizing the flexibility of the tissue around the elbow joint through stretching and grade one and grade two mobilizations as well as proximal strengthening and stabilization exercises. So again, targeting that shoulder and scapular area. There's no specific recommendations for modality use in these folks. Um, they should really just be used on an as-needed basis. Now, operative management. Um, discussion for surgery is made based on a patient's signs and symptoms. Um, most of the decision is going to be made on whether or not they have a loss of elbow motion, if they have pain at the end of the range, and um, whether or not there's a joint space or osteophyte formation. Typically, surgeons want to try and treat this through like an osteophyte excision and a contracture release, um, you know, more of a debridement type of procedure versus trying to go through a um, arthroplasty. So if they are going to do an arthroplasty, they try to go with a humeral ulnar arthroplasty and an arthroscopic osteocapsular arthroplasty um, rather than a total joint. It's just the outcomes are more favorable. So total elbow, if they have to go to a total elbow arthroplasty, um, they, they really try to make sure that the patient is over 65 and the goal is really just to return them to basic ADLs. They do not do these in patients younger than 65 and anyone with a higher level of activity that needs it for like work demands or anything. And that's because the prosthesis at the elbow when they do a total elbow arthroplasty does not have the same life that we're used to seeing in our other joint replacements such as knees and um, hips. So post-operative therapy for these folks um, meaning total elbow arthroplasty, is usually dictated by the surgeon. So detailed guidelines are not really published for this. We don't necessarily have a st set standard of care. I think it's just because we don't do them that much. Um, you know, I would defer you there, really there to discuss with your surgeon. The patients, if you're seeing these in the clinic, they should come with a protocol. Um, they do go through a little bit more detail um, about how they do the total elbow arthroplasty in the current concepts. But because it's not really a first line or commonly utilized treatment, we're not going to go into the full details here. Um, so if you look over that and you have questions about it, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. I'd be happy to go over it a little bit more if you need. Um, just want to focus on some of those other more commonly implemented surgical interventions if they're needed. So that kind of covers RA and OA. The next one we're going to cover is olecranon bursitis. So olecranon bursitis is characterized by an inflammation of the bursal sac that covers the olecranon. Olecranon bursitis can be categorized into three different types, including aseptic, septic, and chronic. So aseptic is usually secondary to a trauma or a sustained pressure over the bursa. Septic is the result of a nearby wound or cellulitis, most often a staph infection. 
In chronic bursitis, is secondary to several repetitive aseptic episodes due to activities involving prolonged or repeated pressures or environmental conditions. So the other thing to note about chronic olecanon bursitis is that underlying conditions may also impact the onset of chronic, um, chronic symptoms. Um, those comorbidities can include gout, pseudogout, or diabetes. So if um, patients have some of those, they're more likely to develop those chronic episodic episodes of bursitis as opposed to one aseptic bout of bursitis at the elbow. Patients with olecranon bursitis will present with unexplained swelling and pain over the olecranon, and the therapist should attempt to differentiate between aseptic or septic by questioning the patient about any recent abrasions, any traumas, or underlying medical conditions. So differentiating between aseptic and septic is not always easy because their clinical presentation can overlap. Really, to differentiate, um, they medically would need to have the fluid aspirated and it needs to be tested for infection. The most common clinical findings you're going to see, though, are warmth, tenderness, um, swelling, and, um, you know, symptoms of like cellulitis type, you know, skin abnormalities or changes, and then um, a fever. So if they have a fever, I would be highly suspicious of a um, septic infection. Aseptic bursitis is typically going to recover quickly. Um, however, if the patient has a septic bout, their recovery is going to be much longer, typically up to 40 days, and that's because they need medical treatment, sometimes IV antibiotics. Um, so that can take much, much longer to recover. In cases where the symptoms are chronic, environmental modification is likely necessary to address their underlying mechanism. So because that's probably due to some repetitive either posturing or position or something, you really have to address that with them or it's going to continue to be chronic. Um, for example, they need to change their position more often. They need to change whatever chair they're using if the armrest is really hard or firm. Sometimes using an elbow pad for these folks can be really helpful. Aspiration and cortisone injections are common non-operative management approaches too. Um, so they will still aspirate it and inject it, you know, just to help get them over that bout, but then work with PT to make sure they maintain their range of motion and um, make those activity modifications appropriately. Surgical intervention is an option. However, the research is really limited and it indicates that non-surgical management is typically going to lead to better outcomes. Um, you know, the surgical approaches for this really aren't even detailed that um, thoroughly, so we're not going to necessarily cover it here. I would really know the different types of bursitis um, in terms of your studying. And then the last additional elbow pathology that we're going to cover is forearm compartment syndrome. So compartment syndrome is typically divided into acute and chronic. It's going to be differentiated by their presentation and time to treat. So despite the differences, typically surgical decompression is the standard of care for both acute and chronic. And surgical intervention is going to entail a release of the intercompartmental pressure through a dorsal or a volar fasciotomy. So in the acute um, cases of form compartment syndrome, you really want to treat that as a medical emergency. Treatment should be initiated within hours. And this is thought to occur secondary to a change in the arteriovenous pressure within the forearm. So essentially what happens as the pressure rises, there's a rise in the intraluminal venous pressure, which is then going to lead to a reduction in the arteriovenous pressure gradient. And that in turn causes a collapse of the venual walls. And it's going to contribute to the formation of that tissue edema, which then brings on the patient's symptoms. Um, this situation may be seen in cases of a supracondylar fracture in children. 
Um, distal radius fractures at any age can have this as a um, resulting um, issue. You may see this in cases where there was a malfunctioning pneumatic tourniquet, so sometimes postoperatively. Um, industrial accidents, this can be fairly common. Sometimes with IV line malfunctions, certain infections can cause this, and certain insect bites. So the incidence is difficult to determine. Um, however, it's thought to be more common in males under the age of 35. The clinical exam for the acute phase should include, include the inspection of the five Ps. The five Ps are pain, pallor, pain with passive stretch, paresthesia, and pulselessness. So it's important to note that all five do not necessarily have to be present to have a diagnosis of acute compartment syndrome. And specifically, sensory deficits may include diminished two-point discrimination or a stocking glove paresthesia. It's also important to note that pulselessness may not be present until the later stages of the condition. Um, so if you're waiting for that to be present, you may be waiting too long. So just kind of have a heightened sense of awareness about um, compartment syndrome if they seem to have a mechanism of injury that would correlate with that. Now, if they come into the clinic and they have pulselessness, you want to send them to the ER immediately because that means they're probably into the much later stages of the condition. Integumentary changes, including blistering, may also be noted in the later stages of the condition. So we're going to talk about chronic here for a minute. The chronic is going to be much less common than the acute. This is typically seen in patients that perform high level of activities that stress the forearm. So you're going to see this sometimes in motorcyclists, water skiers because of the repetitive gripping against a lot of resistance, and wheelchair athletes. And this occurs because there's an abnormal increase in the intracompartmental pressure related to the exertional use of the forearm muscles. So patients will report forearm pain that begins gradually and it worsens um, and it causes them to lose some function with their forearm, wrist, and hand with continued exertion and use of their arms. So symptoms um, in the chronic phase can include weakness, numbness, loss of dexterity or clumsiness, and pain that subsides when a specific activity is terminated. These symptoms generally increase in intensity and frequency with the performance of aggravating tasks. Um, these patients typically, though, will have a normal neurological exam. So that's another way to kind of help differentiate. Um, because it comes and goes with activity, they don't get that sustained issue that they do in an acute case that causes some of those more severe neurodeficits. So recovery for the chronic folks is usually um, favorable. Um, also true with the acute phase, um, they just have to be recognized sooner. Um, most patients will have minimal residual impairments in the forearm, wrist, and hand. However, more research is needed to determine a standard of care regarding the rate of recovery, the amount of recovery, and the time from diagnosis to recovery. And that's true for both acute and chronic. Um, you know, I think because sometimes the recognition of this and the diagnosis of this is not always perfect, that sometimes we have a hard time determining the gold standard of care of how long this might take or how much time they would need for recovery. Um, one complication that's noted for compartment syndrome, um, it's rare, but it's called Volkmann's ischemia contracture. And essentially, it's a spectrum of dysfunction that can happen with untreated compartment syndrome. Um, it's typically preventable if the compartment syndrome is recognized and addressed early enough. But basically, there's this varying involvement based along the spectrum where patients will fall, basically the least involved to the most involved of varying structures and what kind of residual effects or contracture they can develop. 
This is outlined in a lot of detail in current concepts. It talks about very specific muscle involvement um, because it's very rare. Um, we're not going to go into it in a lot of detail here because you really, I think, need to read that and like understand, like look at the pictures of the flexor compartment, extensor compartment, that kind of a thing to really have a good understanding of that. But just be aware that Volkman's ischemia contracture is the complication of compartment syndrome when it's not addressed. Um, so I think the biggest thing with compartment syndrome is to make sure you understand what you're looking for to, you know, especially in like a direct access case with those five Ps. In the acute phase, make sure you understand that's a medical emergency. And then in the chronic phase, you know, making sure you're asking good subjective questions to like differentiate, does it go away when you stop the activity, that kind of a thing. Um, Alexis, do you have anything you want to add on those elbow pathologies? I don't think so. I think that was a really good overview of, um, you know, some of those additional pathologies that you might see in your clinic or also on the test. And like always, if you have, if you review them and you have any other questions about them, please don't hesitate to let us know. Be happy to go over them with you a little bit more. Great. Thanks so much.